Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you first saw this house, you saw an orange tree, and you thought, my California dream is... My California dream has arrived. It is? Yeah, it But is. you are now carrying a bag full of... Yeah, I have a bag full of orange oranges. juice. So we can make juice, and it's like, you know, airborne... OG. <laughs> Have you read John Fonte's Ask the Dust? No. This is kind of seminal L.A. book, and he talks about how, you know, oranges is the symbol of L.A. and how beautiful and juicy and delicious and sweet they are. But if all you eat is oranges, your stomach gets bitter and sour, you I, know? I see the metaphor there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good book. It's, a, it's about a, a failed writer, so I feel a lot of kinship. <laughs> and his struggles. (laughs) Los Angeles is a place that is too big, too deep, spread way too thin under the marine layer and above the concrete culverts to give you, the visitor, any idea of what the hell is really going on. I didn't know that the first half dozen or so times that I came, and I didn't understand the place at all. If I've learned anything in the decades since, it's that you need your people the ones who have found their place in the basin. And they can bring you along and communicate their vision of what Los Angeles really is. So now, I've got JR in Manhattan Beach, Mike in West Hollywood, Yukio in South Central, and increasingly Carolina Miranda, my former colleague at Time Magazine for everything east of the 110. In the next few weeks, you'll meet some of these people, my people in Los Angeles, and I couldn't be happier starting here in East LA with Carolina. She's a deeply influential writer, culture hawk, and collective bargainer at the resurgent Los Angeles Times. We're drinking some juice from her front yard, spiked with Prosecco, and talking about porn theaters, old school donut shops, and what Latinos in the Southland have to teach us all. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and from Luminary Media, This is The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. So what we can do is, well, let me just put these into rinse. If you want juice, I can make juice, but we'll just make juice out of the ones that have already been washed. Yeah. Um, Let's do it. Now, how much is this going to sound like just peeing? (laughs) (laughs) I know, exactly. Sell it to a Hollywood sound guy. It's like his archive of sounds. I need the sound of peeing for a Pig Girl Motivar movie. Okay, hold on. I think we got it. That's it. So what are we... We'll just do straight shots. We can... We could make mimosas. Is it mimosa time? I have one of these mini bottles of Prosecco, so oh, we could yeah. just... All right, that's perfect. Let's do this. Little one-offs of La Marca yeah. Prosecco with East L.A. Orange juice. Orange juice. Anyway, welcome to L.A. <laughs> you and I were working in New York, but you're from out here. You're from Southern California. Yes, I grew up here. You came back for the drink that we're drinking this morning. I came back because I like sunshine and burritos, and New York is terrible on either front. (laughs) The burrito game is a sad game in New York City. And so, no, I'd been wanting to come back for a long time, partly because I don't like winter, and then partly because... I just see a lot of bad writing about L.A. And I remember being in New York and I would read all these stories about L.A. and always thinking, you know, I think I could do this better. You know, why do I read all this crap? 
Um, and so that was part of what motivated me to come back. That, the sunshine, the orange juice, the burritos. There's a side of reading you on social media, especially that I enjoy, which doesn't come that often, but when it comes, it's it's uh, full-throated, and that's the takedown of the incredibly tone-deaf, vacuous New York Times, <laughs> Southern California piece. Yeah, which, usually in the style section. Yeah. It's like the law. <laughs> they fly somebody out to fuck it up exactly. and then go back home. Let's drop this guy in Beverly Hills and arm him with every L.A. trope. You know, nobody walks, there's no culture here, or the culture only just landed here. Everyone drinks pressed juice and, like, eats kale. Um, we are drinking pressed juice, but please note that it has alcohol in it. <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, it's just every stereotype about Los Angeles. There was a story recently, like, nobody eats bread in L.A. And I'm, you know, of course, like, every Latino in Los Angeles was, like, flinging bolillos at the New York Times <laughs> online or the equivalent, you know, saying what the hell are, like, what do you mean by everybody? Because everybody always means like the Bermuda Triangle around Beverly Hills and none of the other communities that actually comprise the majority of Los Angeles. <laughs> right. And where panaderias are one of the three staple businesses. Exactly. Of it's like most of LA. The taco truck, the panaderia and uh, the gas station and car wash slash weed dispensary. <laughs> <laughs> right. So LA is evolving. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean that, like you're saying, there was a personal element too of just feeling like you want a house with an orange tree. Yes. And here we are drinking orange juice from your own orange tree in your house in East L.A. And this is what haunts New Yorkers who have tasted Los Angeles <laughs> on some level, is that it actually happens. It's actually possible. You know, I just consider myself really lucky. Like, I kind of can't believe it happened. When we first moved here, we're living in this tiny, leaky apartment a few a few blocks away from here that had great views of downtown, but that as a living space was limited <laughs> in, its, in its range. So we did put in our time in, in the less idyllic corners of Los Angeles. Well, and one of the things that is also kind of catching up with you, I guess, and, and this is going to probably sound like a call to gentrification, which I suppose it is because, you know, I'm one of the four horsemen of the gentrification apocalypse, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, I cover art, so right. I'm pretty much, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. <laughs> but East LA is fucking great. Yes. You know, I'd been coming here for, for a very long time because, you know, 26 years ago, I started dating the woman I'm with and her family's from East LA, her mom's mm -hmm. side of the family. But I'd also... You know, just like being with the family and spending the time, you remember the heat and the traffic and the, mm -hmm. you know, all of those things. What what I've realized now that I've grown up about East L.A. is that it makes West L.A. look like, I, I don't know, like a, a, a Stepford <laughs> city. I mean, I, you represent. I don't know. I don't want to completely rag on West L.A. Yeah. There's, you know, like the Sawtell area, which is super Japanese and has amazing food and there's some good stuff. There is some good stuff. And you diplomatically represent the entire Southland in the arts and culture scene. So I'll just say it kind of fucked with us because we had always thought like if you move to L.A., you had to be at least around the 405, you know, since you get like that marine layered cool off, you get that good breeze, you you know, yeah. something. And now it's like it's impossible to think about living anywhere except out here where the food is great and where yeah. people are still just living and it's not I mean part of it is LA the west side of LA has become increasingly unaffordable like these pockets on the west side that used to be affordable areas like Palms parts of Venice stretches of Santa Monica in uh, along Pico I when I was growing up you know Santa Monica was not the sort of $10 juiced republic that it is today it you know had a lot of working class it was the people's republic of santa monica there were some crunchy food co-ops and a dead mall you know it wasn't it wasn't what it is today and i think you know la's booming development yeah. has displaced these spaces that a lot of working class people used to inhabit and so as a result everybody's moving east putting a lot of pressure on you know latino families on the east side right because there is i mean santa monica used to have like a really bitchin' and well-developed Oaxacan basketball league and the yeah. public parks out there and stuff. That would not happen today, I imagine. I haven't yeah, gone Yeah, it'd be check, harder. But... You probably have folks that are there from those days. But yeah, it'd be very difficult to land in L.A. now and just move to Santa Monica unless you are a Trustafarian or some tech 
some well-remunerated tech person. (laughs) So you moved here to the east side a few years ago, and part of your exploration of L.A. and being back here has been through food. So tell me about your mission based my missions (laughs) your missions i have many missions yeah it's been interesting i we moved around a lot in la and the southern california area growing up so i spent part of my youth in the valley which is a great site for food in the san fernando valley and then i went to high school in orange county in a neighborhood that is super asian so just ate lots of great chinese and japanese and Korean food. I've always come back to LA a lot. And in fact, my father was sick for a while when he was dying of brain cancer. I spent a lot of time here uh, helping care for him. And and I think that was part of what inspired me to move back too, of spending so much time here. I was here for like months at a time, uh, being like reminded that it's like, oh, I don't have to live in a little sweat box in New York. Like I can come back here and be here and I can actually write about this place as somebody who is knowledgeable about it. And the food is great and it's cheap. And the great thing about Los Angeles is something that I think Jonathan Gold articulated so beautifully in his writing was that, you know, some of the most amazing things you find in that like anonymous strip mall in the truck in the little hot dog stand you know that LA does working class food really well and local food and neighborhood food and that food that nourishes and that isn't about posting it to Instagram and so I've been on these like bizarre little missions so one of my missions now that I just started is to eat at and this is an architectural slash food mission is to eat at every donut stand that has a giant donut as part of the architecture so you know Randy's by the airport uh, yes. on Manchester, which is, is famous. Right. Uh, Dale's. You, you can't get from the airport headed north without... Without driving by, driving by Randy's. Giant fucking donut. How many feet? I don't know. It's 20. probably like, yeah, it's uh-huh. it's big. They recently painted it like yellow in honor of the Rams at the Super Bowl. And there was this like mild horror that went through L.A. briefly. <laughs> like, is somebody fucking with the Randy's donut? How dare anybody like touch the Randy's donut? It's like somebody called the L.A. Conservancy. Is, <laughs> like, what, you know? what is that even supposed to be? Is that like a lemon curd donut or <laughs> yeah, something? Exactly. It made no sense. So the Randy's donut, Dale's donut, uh, there's the donut hole in La Puente. Um, there's other big donuts. Because I work near the airport, I started Randy's, and now I'm starting to work my way east. What are they going to have in common? Do they are they all like kind of a of a of a certain era? Like I don't know. You know yeah, that I mean that's the thing. The they they are from this era when LA was just full of programmatic architecture. You know, if you think of the Brown Derby being some of its most famous. So there's the bar in North Hollywood that is in a barrel. In the back, they have what used to be, I think, a hot dog stand that's a little dog. And so all of this architecture that kind of signaled what it was about, like that was such a huge thing in Los Angeles. And actually, if you watch like old films of Los Angeles, it was bonkers. There was like buildings that looked like the Sphinx and, you know, like everything in all kinds of shapes. And so I feel like it kind of harkens to this era of complete ebullience and freedom and yeah, I'm going to build a thing in the shape of a derby or a donut because I can and I'm not going to have some like New York types going, oh my God, you can't do that. LA really was this place, especially in the early 20th century, where like anything went architecturally, anything went in terms of film. I mean, that was when the film industry was really taking off here. And so I think that architecture for me symbolizes that era. Just we're going to come here and break some trademark rules and make movies. (laughs) (laughs) Damn your zoning laws to hell. (laughs) Exactly. It is. And it's so amazing because you're right, like the role of LA in our national culture of telling New York to lighten the fuck up Mm -hmm. is huge and hugely important, which is probably all the condescension that kind of, you know, drips off the style section. The New York Times is probably in conversation with that that legacy. legacy. But I've got this coffee table book about all the disappearing storefronts and signages in New York Mm -hmm. that is crazy because you go through there and the rate of extinction has increased since I even got the book. You can barely find any of the ones that are there Mm -hmm. in there. L.A. is still a place where you can go and, you know, right across from my wife's house in Culver City, the Tattletale Lounge 
is still a stinky ass fantastic <laughs> dive bar with original signage like yes. wildly inventive like kind of like you know hot dog on a stick meets you know bukowski you know <laughs> glory hole uh, and it's just like i can smell it from here <laughs> it's so it's so original it hasn't been redeveloped or no. like condemned uh, or any of the things that maybe might have should have happened yeah and it's still there and it's amazing and it's right next to a gun shop and la is just still living you know yeah it still has somebody once told me that la always has at least one of something that has gone extinct elsewhere so like for example i did a story a few years back on how la's last two porn theaters many cities don't have porn theaters anymore at all um and in fact i think the last one in new york was just sold and doesn't screen movies anymore, if I'm correct. You know, it's this thing where in the age of the internet, you don't need to go to a porn theater, you can download it. And yet in LA, there are these two theaters where you can go and watch porn. And, you know, they really speak to the city where there is the space for these things to continue to survive. So yeah, the programmatic architecture. The other thing I'm on a mission for is my husband and I, every anniversary, we go and eat at an old-timey steakhouse. So nice. uh, the Del Rey and Pico Rivera, I don't know if you've ever been there. I have not. It's just like, you know, a piece of the 40s or 50s with this bizarre 80s bar. Like they attach this like 80s bar to it. That's a little, like doesn't make sense architecturally, but whatevs. But it is one of those places where you go get your great steak and your iceberg wedge and the waiters all look like they've been there since... <laughs> the place opened you know and they have the googie sign with neon and it's just like this other sliver of los angeles you know if, if the programmatic architecture speaks to this ebullience of this earlier era these steakhouses are kind of these modernist post-war booming la everyone's moving here aerospace is here a lot of them speak to that era and but you know they go evolving too like the one we went to last time stevens is it's like wedged next to the five freeway where commerce meets east la meets downey and it has this kind of like whole italian decor motif going on inside with like you know visions of tuscany it's this like old-timey steakhouse the food is not that good um but the night that we were there to celebrate our anniversary was also cumbia night and then next door there was like some latin band playing and so everybody in their catering area and so it's this steakhouse that still exists largely in the form it always has and is i imagine serving the menu it always has Yet it has been completely taken over by Latino immigrants in the sense of like they have made it their own. And it's really great to see. It's like kind of great to be at this old Italian old school steakhouse and then go dance cumbia like next to the bar. <laughs> that sort of old bottle new wine thing mm -hmm. strikes me as like super L.A. Yeah. Too. One of the things that always blew me away because my wife's family is Mexican from East L.A. and her father's family is, you know, Japanese American from Gardena, South Central area. Everybody lived in the same shitty houses, you mm -hmm. know, like the little ranch house with the small yard and the chain link fence. But when you went inside each of these houses, it was like transporting you were in a completely different culture yes you know definitely plastic on the sofa <laughs> in east la god bless yeah yeah the little side yard was a rock garden in uh -huh. gardena the gods <laughs> hanging out in the garden and on the walls are different that the architecture is the same the, the the style of living the basin that everybody shares exactly the same but wildly different everyone uh, makes inside. it their own flavor like everyone takes it and makes it their own flavor. One of my favorite places to go, and again, the food's not that good, but I just like to go because it's so symbolic, is this place in Alhambra called Noodle World. It's this like chain, I think it's a, a local chain of Asian noodle houses that's like Pan-Asian. Like they serve, you know, you can get a Pad Thai, you can get Chinese noodles, you can get, and none of them are that great. But the one in Alhambra occupies a former Bob's Big Boy that still has the Big Boy in the dining room. So it's kind of this husk of Americana that was dying and then immigrants came in and rejuvenated it and made it their own. And you go in there and it's Latinos and Asians eating Pan-Asian noodles inside Bob's Big Boy with Bob still watching. <laughs> like it's just this completely amazing testament to, you know, how 
immigrants can kind of invigorate old symbols. And I think of Koreatown. Koreatown is a perfect example of this. It's this part of the city that had really kind of been affected by white flight uh, in the 1960s and Korean immigrants came in. And a reason a lot of, I think, the incredible architecture in that neighborhood has survived was because people kind of came in and took it over, but kind of kept it as is. They didn't come in and redevelop these buildings. They just used them as is. Right. They just put some karaoke yeah, or a and, spa or a yeah. good restaurant or, you know, a place with bottle service. I mean, you name it, fried chicken. But what is really a treasure of a neighborhood has been in large part preserved by Korean immigrants. Right. So that process, I guess, is giving L.A. a lot of its juice right now. I don't know. It's so stupid to say, like, L.A. is having a moment. L.A. has been here. LA has been here all along. It has its moments. Like every city, it goes up and down. I mean, the 90s were not a good time here. Between the civil unrest in 1992, riots, and followed by the Northridge earthquake, it was a period when a lot of people wanted to give up on LA. Um, And then, you know, followed by various financial crises. Things did not look good for Los Angeles, but, you know, it has come through and it's booming. And I, you know, I think certainly part of it has to do with its position. I think people love to talk about Hollywood, but LA has the biggest shipping container port in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Manufacturing is still a huge part of what gets done here. Yeah, San Pedro is like... Yeah, you go to San Pedro, which a lot of these parachute reporters probably never do, or they only fly over it, and it's just like, you are looking at industrial-scale commerce, like, writ on the land. You know, it's intense. They have a Japanese diner in San Pedro that's been there since like 19-0-something. Oh my God, I need to add that to my list of things to do. It's such a trip and it's, I think it's still in the family and it's one of those things sound like you're saying with the the nightclub where the neighborhood is definitely changed, (laughs) changed around it. But yeah, it's still plugging on and, and, uh, Anyway, it's just you see that this city is it's got just like a thousand universes Mm -hmm. inside of it. And one of the things that I admire about the writing you do is always kind of finding ways of talking about it that are both new, but kind of respect what's out there and giving it a different perspective. And and that certainly this this essay you just wrote for Guernica, although you are, you know, your staff at L.A. Times, they let you out to like. Yeah. Think big and crazy uh, outside Yeah, that was a, a piece that had actually been in the work for many years. Yeah. I had two things that were outstanding from my pre-LA Times life. The other one is an artist monograph that I'm running four years late on and <laughs> slightly embarrassed to admit. Well, but shit, we won't gotta, talk about that now. You got a busy but, job. But the Guernica story, yeah, it was really about reframing Los Angeles. I mean, as the daughter of South American immigrants, this whole idea of LA as West was not, it just wasn't my reality. Like, I recognize that it's part of the history of what this is, of what California is, westward expansion, manifest destiny, the crossing. You know, Joan Didion has written about it quite remarkably. But it wasn't my reality, and it wasn't the reality of most of the people I grew up with who were Latino and Asian, for whom L.A. is north and is east. So and it's north for, for people for coming from Latin America. America and, and it's east. East for Asians who are yes. coming to find themselves through a very different kind of uh, Exactly. And path. it has these long traditions of Asian immigration. I mean, there were Chinese immigrants in Los Angeles in the first census when California became part of the union in 1850. Mexicans and Asians have been part of Los Angeles. Well, Mexicans, obviously, this was a city founded by Mexicans. But, you know, I'm talking about like that mix of people has been from the day California joined the union. That has been Los Angeles. And so this long running Chinese immigration that began with the railroads and the gold rush, followed by a huge Japanese immigration, followed by Vietnamese immigration, followed by Korean immigrations, these like constantly replenished waves of Asian and Latino immigration, certainly Mexican over the decades, but followed by Central Americans and Peruvians. So your Chino-Latino story of L.A. Yes. is really just about reframing the axis, and it's not about East Coasters coming West. Yeah, exactly, and I think so much of it, and the problem with the East-West narrative is it always puts L.A. within the context of only the U.S. You know, it starts with the landing of the colonists in Virginia and slowly progresses West until you hit the Pacific Ocean, and that's where your California dream dies. You know, <laughs> like manifest destiny goes skidding into the ocean, and then that's it. You're done. And it completely ignores, A, everything that was here before 
any of that happened, that this did used to be Mexico and that this is a very different type of place with a very different type of architecture that may not be familiar to East Coasters, but that is very familiar if you come from Mexico or Santiago. I mean, Santiago, Chile, topographically, looks exactly like Los Angeles, down to the smog. <laughs> you know, like Mediterranean climate. Mediterranean climate. It's one of the seven Mediterranean zones in the world, LA and Santiago, Chile. So for my mother, this was this very like familiar landscape, whereas to East Coasters, it was kind of this fantastical, you know, desert with oranges and cactus. And I think when you look at it differently, you see the city very differently and you see the forces that shape it very differently. You see the ways in which Asian design have influenced the architecture and landscape. You know, you can drive through Los Angeles and look at the gardens and tell where Japanese families had lived by the landscape design. The bushes trimmed into these like charming shapes and arranged yeah. You know, with this balance and symmetry, you can drive through a neighborhood and see the influences, obviously, of Spanish colonial and Mexican architecture. You can see all of these things written sort of into the face of the city. But when we only look at it as West, what do you see? You see filmmaking, you see railroad, you see the Dust Bowl migrants, you see a million Iowans moving out here, but it kind of erases everything else. So that was something I really wanted to think about. Let's reframe yeah. You know, I'm tired of reacting to that debate. Um, let's reframe it. Right. And more often than I probably would like, I'm I'm down here to have meetings in that other L.A. about film or television. You know, this is a lot of what we were doing with Tony. And, and you forget how obnoxious that culture is of like incredible meetings and kind of vapid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm just selling everybody out that <laughs> vapid people. Uh, no, some of them I'm sure are fine, but this, it's like that LA does exist. And it it's, does. And it really does. I think this is probably just having the great privilege of getting to walk around and find food with you here. But that's the way that I think this town expresses itself for outsiders who don't understand the polarity that you're talking about and all this, like yeah. that's how they can get it. And you had worked with Jonathan, you knew him yeah. personally. And Jonathan Gold was the the poet of all of this stuff. What did you learn from him about LA and about eating in LA? I think, you know, one of the things, it's hard to sum up what I learned from him because he was just so enormously influential. I think part of it is meeting LA on its own terms, understanding that, you know, East Coasters come out here and kind of freak out that the city doesn't have a center. It doesn't have a center. Yeah. And, and that can be a little annoying sometimes when you want to do a bunch of things all at once, because you got to sort of scoot all over town and sit in traffic. But I think part of not having a center means that there are lots of centers. And I think that's something that Jonathan uh, in, understood innately as a writer and as a reporter, that there are lots of centers and those centers revolve around different ideas and different people um, and different communities of immigrants and you meet them on their own terms. I think one of the things that makes LA so different from New York is I feel like everybody moves to New York and ultimately becomes a New Yorker. People who move to LA ultimately become more a part of the neighborhood that they move to than this greater idea of LA. Like what is an Angelino? It's right. like, well, an Angelino is some yoga girl from the West Side. It is also, you know, Mexican immigrants on the East Side. And it's like Long Beach car dudes that speak English like they're speaking Spanish but are white. Or the generations of African Americans that have lived in South L.A., like areas like Lamert Park. I mean, all of that is Los Angeles. There is no, like, this one single identity. And I feel like Jonathan... He really understood that. And I think through food made us understand that L.A. really is this place that you have to go to. You have to make the effort to get to know it's never going to come to you. Like you're going to have to go to the Indian restaurant in Artesia that's way out of your way to go have this experience. That place is not just going to come open randomly in your neighborhood because part of what that restaurant in Artesia is doing is serving a whole Indian community that the little Tijuana you know chicken neck taco stand is parked in Boyle Heights for a reason uh, and I think he had such a great understanding of that and was able to bring people together through food in a way that I don't think really any other writer has well when you were saying you know that Angelinos have all these distinct identities one thing that does seem unifying is that they are all 
held hostage in their neighborhood by the traffic. Yeah. Yeah, that binds us, the traffic binds us together. And you're right, it is this kind of, you have to make the effort. And I think that's part of LA too. The whole journey is the destination. I think growing up here, one of the things I understand innately is like sometimes you'd be hanging out with a friend and you might spend a day running errands with them, but you'd be hanging out with them. So you'd be in the car and then you'd go to the drugstore and you'd get something, you'd get back in the car and then you'd go somewhere else. And, and, and the day was spent kind of in like movement. And I remember doing that with some out of town friends like when I first moved back, I was like, hey, I got all these things to do. Why don't you come with? And they were, they kept expecting like, okay, where, when are we going to arrive at the place we're going to? And I was like, we're going from one place to the next. I got shit to do and you're coming with me and this is how we hang out. The image that I have of um, Jonathan Gold is is his truck. Yes, and like, tooling around. That was his thing was he was going to blast through all of these walls of traffic by, you know, and, and I remember, I think it Matt who, who said that he actually insisted on picking Matt up in the truck and they would go do the thing because that's a, that was the full experience for exactly. him. Exactly. And I think uh, Angelinos really understand that. Jonathan wanting to get Matt into his truck. It wasn't just about meeting in the restaurant. It was about the whole exchange that goes on prior to you getting there and sitting in traffic and having this conversation and, and knowing that being in a state of movement is just part of being here. Yeah. I, or I, being in a state of standing still, really, because traffic doesn't move that much. Right. <laughs> Jonathan Gold, you've had this problem, and I guess the the LA Times had this problem. It's like, how do you replace a guy like that? It, which was, you know, what I don't know. When you can't, you can't. It's like trying to replace Tony. Like they are such, not just larger than life, but with such a distinct world view that to come in and have somebody try to just occupy that worldview would feel a little bit like an occupation. Yeah, we've been joking about, you know, the it's like we were joking with Kamal about, you know, somebody just tossing a CBGB t-shirt at the next anchor. Yeah, being <laughs> like, here, be Tony. Yeah, right. <laughs> that it's would like be you, terrifying. You couldn't give an old beater truck to a, you know, Jewish music savant uh, no. <laughs> with a huge appetite and say like, great, let's Go. make it happen. This is now almost exactly a year to when we came and shot with Bourdain in L.A., for this little LA series, we did six of them. They were kind of like ethnic enclaves, mm-hmm. uh, little profiles. And I remember Tony, one of his notes was like, we have to say Jonathan Gold country somewhere in here. Yeah. I mean, you could have said it in every episode and every minute. I think he chose the Armenian episode where we went to Little Armenia and, yeah. and uh, had their Basturma. But yeah, it's, it's just like, you know, eating in LA is just, it was the way to do it right was the Jonathan yeah. Gold way. I have to say, though, you know, not to put shoes on anybody because it has been a platoon that's come in to the Times to sort of take over and reinvigorate mm-hmm. uh, the food section in particular. But where you brought Tony for that series at Six and Bonnie Bray yes. was just Little like... Little Guatemala. Little Guatemala was just like, it was pretty fucking Goldian, you know? Yes. <laughs> you, you are not he and he not you and so on. But it was still just this incredible, almost like a strip mall on the sidewalk of vendors who cook out of shopping carts yeah and create incredible food and that i and that's where la is great is that the sprawl allows these little micro communities to emerge that you know you can be tooling around los angeles and come to this corner where there's all of a sudden like 30 guatemalan food vendors and then you keep driving and you hit downtown you know right. like it's yeah. just <laughs> and that it was also six and bonnie bray as you were pointing out in the video with tony used to be like this kind of shishi place that yes, you know in the early 20th century the urban elite of los angeles and uh, always in transition. One of the things that you had brought up uh, there too was about licensing for street vendors mm-hmm. and the the conflict that the city had of not wanting to, you know, put these people already at risk in you know states of violation of the law, particularly mm-hmm. in Trump times. What's what's been happening in L.A. around that? They finally passed a law that legalized street vending. It's hilarious because L.A. is known for its street vending, and it's essentially been illegal forever. Most of the time, people look the other way, but there have been, you know, there are raids every once in a while. And so it was finally legalized, I believe, last year. I think part of what they are determining now is they now need to figure out the bureaucracy that will govern this. So if you have a cart, what kind of license will govern that cart? Will there be health inspections? Essentially, how is this going to be managed at the level of government? 
So that's being determined right now. And I'm sure knowing the way the LA City Council works, yeah. it'll be a while before any of that is figured out. So in the meantime, we operate in this kind of in-between space, which is kind of, kind of how LA operates all the time. <laughs> Nobody's too deeply uncomfortable with it. <laughs> no. I did notice this ridiculously good dinner you took me to last night where I got, you know, like coche taco and mole poblano and i mean just absurdly good yeah. chicharron taco that is the best chicharron taco on um, the planet they had a little sign it was like it had a health like yeah inspection sign and they also had like running water in a sink and you know yeah. like there the was... trucks often do i think the street vending mainly affects folks who are selling out of carts right and so the people like, who have cooked tamales at home at and home selling them. or the donuts like i once did a story for lucky peach about the donut luchador this guy who used to make donuts in his home great and story then go and sell them on the street and then it turned out that at night he was he did mexican lucha lucha libre that was a great story and so i think it, it affects that kind of trade and then the city council is looking at rules right now to make people also catering out of their homes small scale catering because that is a huge livelihood for immigrants here people being able to make tamales in their home and maybe like take some orders through facebook and sell them but because they're not licensed because occasionally there are crackdowns on homemade food and so they're looking at that because that is a very important source of income for immigrants and for women too who tend to be the ones who do that and by by it being illegal you just remove a whole income stream for immigrant populations or make it very difficult for them to practice it so the city's in the process of reviewing all of that stuff in the meantime street vending remains as lively as it always has been in other <laughs> just, words not much has changed <laughs> just waiting for a style section writer to come out and discover it yeah, exactly. <laughs> in la they eat on the streets it's um, remarkable and not just hot dogs but here in la we have bacon dogs oh yeah this is a completo of dog. los angeles yeah it's the bacon dog is a hot dog wrapped in bacon like the bacon strip is wrapped around the dog and then cooked usually on like a metal tray on a laundry that is essentially one of those metal laundry baskets. Oh, nice. Like it's this whole MacGyver With the big flag setup. pole. That, uh, Not yeah. even. It's usually just the cart. And then there's onions and peppers. And you get like, you can get hot sauce and ketchup and mustard. And it's it's total like drunk people food. Like you come out of some club. There's a lot of them that, you know, sell around Hollywood Boulevard. My cousin got her citizenship recently. And I went to the ceremony at the LA Convention Center. And you come out of the Convention Center. And there are stalls by both political parties where you can register to vote. And then there's bacon dogs. or uh last year i went to the oscars i covered it as part of a story i was doing and when i left the oscars i decided that rather than taking a car out of the oscars i would walk on hollywood boulevard east until i hit something because there's a whole security cordon that goes on around the oscars and it shuts down all the blocks and so i just kept walking on Hollywood Boulevard. In your ball gown. In my, I actually was not wearing a ball gown. I just wore this black thing and I figured nobody will even know better since I sit in the nosebleed. And I just kept walking until the security cordon came to an end. And on the other end of that security cordon on Hollywood Boulevard was a lady selling bacon dogs. And a guy who tried to sell me some hot Nikes. <laughs> so it's just like, God, God bless Los Angeles. You can leave the Oscars, <laughs> roam the streets, have a bacon dog, and pick up some hot Nikes. <laughs> it's the full LA. It's the full red carpet experience. It's the full red carpet experience. And so like the bacon dog is kind of a big LA, you know, beyond the taco truck and, and that kind of thing. It's like the bacon dog is a very important um drunk people staple <laughs> important, of, of important drunk people were yeah to, you, to you, the world is jesus so. i mean we had a, a very appropriately sized mimosa here yeah. um but i kind of wished that i was drunk and i could just go and <laughs> just find go a, bacon a bacon dog, dog. And... at this hour it would be kind of hard you have yeah to, they really come out in the evening hours. <laughs> yeah. well they should stand outside the tattletale uh, at 11 a.m <laughs> sell drunk food they would they would do a brisk business out I there i know i know or the DMV. <laughs> Those lines. <laughs> Let me ask you the thing that I think you're most, uh, I don't know, I don't know how your brain is partitioned right now, but it mm-hmm. feels like a large part of your uh, intellectual, personal, professional mind is on this incredible process that I think journalists all around the country are watching right now of finalizing the unionization of the Los Angeles Times, one of the yes. great 
papers uh, in our country's history is finally going union. One of the great union busting papers, like yes, a real historical enemy of anti union of of working people. Um, General Otis was no lover of unions. So tell me, and didn't they get they got firebombed? Yeah, I think it was was it nineteen ten or nineteen twelve? The date is muddled in my mimosa adult brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the LA Times was so anti union that it was bombed in nineteen tens, and something like seventeen people died. Jesus. It was bombed at night. Yeah, it was really tragic. Uh, by these militants from these like steelworkers union that were going around bombing sites around the U.S. that were anti-union sites. But the L.A. Times was just known for being vitriolically anti-union. Not only did General Otis not want a union at his newspaper, any business in Los Angeles that allowed unions would find itself on the receiving end of all kinds of invective in the pages of the Los Angeles Times. Like he really saw L.A. as this place where entrepreneurs could come and open their businesses and it would be like anti-union and it would be like a businessman's paradise. And um, it would also interestingly contain no minorities. Uh, they used to call it the great white spot. You know, LA. Los Angeles. Yes, Los Angeles would be the great white spot. And so General Otis, who became the first serious publisher of the LA Times, because the LA Times was founded prior to him taking it on, was very anti-union. And that kind of set the tone for the LA Times, excuse me, the 1960s when Otis Chandler took over and it became a much more serious journalistic enterprise. You know, he started hiring real reporters and started questioning government and not being in the pocket Mm -hmm. of city leaders. And the LA Times really started to earn Pulitzers at at that time. Even then, the LA Times had this very paternalistic attitude towards its employees. You know, oh, we're going to pay you well. We're going to take care of you. This is, it was called the Velvet Coffin because it was where you went to kind of die. Like once you went to work at the LA Times, you weren't going to leave. And uh, and part of that meant never joining a union. That was the other side of the, the deal. Fortunately, there's no outright violence between management and workers now. But you saw even with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and their publisher went berserk in the newsroom and yeah. scared the dickens out of everybody there and in part because there was like a pro-union yeah the union had been critical of him yeah Yeah. just you know it's so anyway it's very real it's a huge part of i think what journalists everywhere are thinking about and and it's on the mind as they try to get some protections how did how did this last round start and what's your role in it well the, the unionization effort started in 2016 and it was when we were still owned by the terribly named tronk tronk just Tribune online content run by a bunch of despicable dude bros uh, from Chicago. And what had happened was it's like the LA Times had seen what papers everywhere had seen. It was just being killed by a thousand cuts and, you know, continual layoffs, uh, less resources, worker benefits and not giving raises. Everything that you can think of that goes on in newspapers was happening uh, at the LA Times. And you know, they took away our accrued vacation and there was, it was almost like it had come on the waves of all these layoffs and it was almost the straw that broke the camel's back because the accrued vacation for a lot of LA Times employees, that accrued vacation became really valuable if you got laid off Mm. because there were no protections and really no protections in place if you got laid off. So that little kitty of money, you know, reporters relied on it if they got canned and the company took it away. And that ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back and started organizing. You know, it's like the company can do these things unilaterally. We have no say. We can't complain. Like there's no way to fight back. And the famously anti-union LA Times established a union. I got involved several months in. There had been organizing because I work mostly from home. I'm sometimes not completely connected to what's happening in the newsroom. And so a few months in, I heard about it and I became involved and started helping organize sections of the calendar section. And then after the union got voted in, which was historic because not only was it the first big union establishing itself, I mean, we now are at over 400 members. Wow. It was at the historically anti-union LA Times. So it made headlines everywhere. It inspired unionization campaigns at other much smaller papers like in Wyoming and Montana. The Chicago Tribune unionized, announced its unionization efforts after we did. Orlando, like all of these newspapers have unionized in the wake of our thing. And then now we're negotiating our first contract, which is as joyous as you 
might imagine consists so, of 10 hour meetings with lawyers <laughs> and, and you're part of the negotiation team i'm on the bargaining committee the yeah. bargaining committee mm-hmm. why why take that on especially for journalists who are listening like what what is what is your responsibility in this kind of very internecine and sometimes backstabby world of writing and journalism how do you decide to be a collectivist and and put so much of your time into this effort um because i'm a masochist and didn't know better <laughs> You know, I think for me, it was a couple of things. It was one, the political climate. I'm a Latina in the age of Trump. And it's a a moment in which the media has been under attack. You know, the fake news media reporters have gotten hurt at events like they've been attacked. You know, this National Guardsman who was recently busted and wanted to kill members of the media. And my feeling was like if I could help journalists protect themselves, that that was something I could do. And right. that didn't interfere with my being a reporter. You know, there was no conflict of interest. Right. And you and can't, it, I mean, none of us can do anything about the shooting at the Capitol Gazette. Exactly. The murderous yeah, intent terrible. of so many against our trade. You know, it, it, and it's interesting because it has been these kind of twin calamities where you have deep professional instability. Combined with violence. Yeah. My feeling was if I can help give journalists any modicum of protection, then that will be something... I can do. It's a little bit like herding cats because, you know, writers are famously independent and little crabby about getting involved in group activities. You know, we were all the loners in high school. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, getting everybody to work together and run information is definitely a little insane. And there are days where I'm like, why am I doing this? But at the same time, I think people get it and they knew that the state of our industry is dire and they, they knew our the state of our paper was dire and that if we kept letting these executives do what they were doing which was like death by a thousand cuts while remunerating themselves very handsomely i mean they were giving themselves like you know michael farrow was got a 15 million dollar bonus for quote-unquote consulting absolutely shocking and it's, and disgusting. it's in my most optimistic appraisal of what's happening around the country i always think maybe there's something it's so bad it's cathartic yes. like it might actually call into action deeper structural reevaluation of how things go because it's just so venal i mean it's 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 pillage you know and so they were essentially pillaging the la times like they sold our building out from under us they laid people off they did everything to sort of cut from us while paying themselves more than most newspaper you know he had a private plane like what newspaper executive has a private plane like give me a break yeah and you know he's not the only one alden media has been another one that has you know they purposely go and invest in newspapers that own their buildings because then they know that they can sell all of that infrastructure out from under them and make money. Yep. Um, it is just pure corporate pillage and in the meantime, destabilizing a profession that is already unstable and that, you know, I always remind people like it's the First Amendment. What we do is protected by the First Amendment. It's an important part of being a citizen, having a civic space is people who look into what people in government and people in positions of power are doing. And are we always perfect at it or great at it? No, but you know, it's like an attempt. (laughs) So I think our union very much stems from that. And so in, in terms of the bargaining process, it has been very laborious. It's our first contract. And so first contracts are always the most difficult. And we have pushed for as much pay as you know, we can ring out of our billionaire owner at this time, uh, which uh, could be more competitive. But it is a salary increase at a time in which a lot of journalists aren't seeing salary increases. So we have that to look forward to. You know, we have managed to land a diversity clause in the contract that requires the company to interview a wider range of people when they're yeah, uh, casting like about for a job. A Rooney rule for... It's a total Rooney rule for yeah. journalism. Because even though the, the LA Times has one of the best ratios of underrepresented minorities in the newsroom, I, I'd say it's less worse than other papers, but it, it certainly doesn't reflect the demographics of the, Los Angeles. The white spot. Yes. <laughs> it's hard great to bleach white, out. The great white spot is still <laughs> there. And we have managed to include something like that, and the company has accepted it, and so that's great for us. Now, we still have some other things that we are working on. The company's making a real land grab on intellectual property. They not only want to own the things we write for the LA Times, which of course they do, but they want to own things that might be tangentially connected to our beats. And so it would set an industry low essentially for 
we were talking about this too in some of the great works like Lev Grossman's Magicians series yeah. that he did while he was a writer the with Time. us at yeah. Time Magazine. And he's rightfully had a ton of success with just would not be able to happen if you take all the IP from people who are on your staff. And exactly. No matter what they do or when they do it, he wrote that shit in his own time. Exactly. And, Unpaid. You know, it's exactly. worth it. He should get to keep the spoils. It is, I, I have to say, just watching from New York, what is really exciting is to see the number of announcements of new positions, to yes. see people like Gustavo Ariano and Peter Meehan and all of these people who I, I know can do so much in a situation like this just be brought in and yes. it's fucking great and it makes me root incredibly hard for the LA Times and get that shit on paper yes. <laughs> get your get your pay locked in exactly. while while the you know the trade winds are favorable but they they seem to be that way for now and that's pretty exciting uh, I recently went to a new employee orientation to talk a little bit about the union and what we do and what being involved means and you know, I just had to step back like in the middle of it because there was like 20 employees in the room, including our new class of Met Pros, which is the diversity training program. I looked around and, and I literally had to stop and I said, you know, if you would have told me a year ago that I would be here in front of a room full of new hires talking about what the union does, I just wouldn't have believed you. And here we are. It really is moving. And I feel like all the blood, sweat, and tears and late nights reading contracts like <laughs> are worth it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, fucking get it done. I, I mean, will. By the time this comes out, hopefully the contract will be will be locked in and, and negotiated and finished. And God, I, I hope so because I need a full night's sleep. <laughs> I'm such a mess. <laughs> um, but thank you for hosting me, allowing me to record you. Uh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> in your home while you also have uh, many important legal documents related to the union waiting for you. But uh, yeah, L.A. is an incredible city. Doing L.A. Uh, with you. It, it brings it out that much more. I'm very I, I always happy see it as a, a little chain. You start with one thing that leads you to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's kind of never ending. It's beautiful. Next podcast episode. Why the fuck am I still living in New York? <laughs> Thanks, Carolina. <laughs> Thank you. The Trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Taffy Mukanyadze is our editor and, like me, does not hate a well-timed mimosa. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Now, for a word about Luminary Media, our bright new model home of the future. It's a platform for a diverse and amazing array of podcasts that will be yours ad-free if you sign up now. This show is going to remain free for the next month, but after that, it is all for subscribers. And I hope that you will stand up and be counted among the righteous. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up today. That's luminary.link backslash trip to sign up. Next week, Chris Yenbemrung of Night Market, who drinks wine with me in a Silver Lake apartment that he seems to have rented just to hold his wine. Dude is living his best life. We talked about Thai cuisine, 80s Hollywood power lunches, and why Night Market is the restaurant for our times. We will meet you there. <laughs>